Hey, I'm Mike Conway. Welcome to Retail Intel. A couple of weeks ago, our entire organization at Phillips Edison met in Lexington, Kentucky for our company's annual meeting. We had the privilege of having Tom McGee as our keynote speaker to kick off the festivities. Tom is president and CEO of ICSC, International Council of Shopping Centers, which has over 70,000 members. Take a listen as our principal, Jeff Edison, interviews Tom and they discuss the convergence of the physical and digital world as it relates to the retail renaissance. Thank you for the privilege of being here today and talking to you about the term retail renaissance. And I, I, I use that term specifically because renaissance means rebirth. Uh, and it's not a Pollyannish phrase. There is a lot of disruption that's taking place in our industry, as all of you know, as you're out competing every day. Uh, but I want to take the, uh, some time today to kind of frame that disruption uh, in a broader context, and I'll share a ton of data with you about different uh, elements of what I call convergence that's taking place between the physical and digital world, but even within different forms of commercial real estate coming together. Um, I'll spend maybe half the time kind of going through the slides, and I'd love to have uh, a lot of Q&A and questions and address any comments that you have. First. Because we're uh, we're right at the conclusion of the holidays, uh, you know, we're only a month removed from the holiday season. At first, I thought I would share before we get into kind of the conversation around the industry, uh, some observations around the holiday itself. And first and foremost, we had a very uh, strong holiday season, and not surprisingly, uh, the economic conditions were generally positive. Uh, and when you have a fairly strong job market, fairly strong consumer sentiment, you're going to have strong uh, retail sales. And retail sales per the government grew by about 4% over the course of the year. But there were some pretty significant trends that I think really manifested themselves, uh, manifested themselves over the holiday season, which are aligned with some of the things I'll talk about today. And we particularly saw a huge embrace of mobile technology and the omnichannel experience. 198 million people shopped in stores over the holiday season. Um, I think this uh, particular stat is very relevant. 88% of click and collect shoppers made an additional in-store purchase. It speaks to the, the convergence of technology and the importance of retailers getting customers in their store. When we, we know that when retailers come, uh, get a customer to come in their store, almost always they buy something else. Um, whether that's an impulse buy or something more significant, 66% of adults used a smartphone to make a purchase. And so oftentimes when we think of mobile technology or e-commerce, we think of somebody sitting behind a screen. But in fact, most mobile tech, most uh, e-commerce now is done via smartphones. 40% uh, of shoppers went to a retailer's website to do additional shopping after they visited the store, which speaks to the Halo report that I'll talk about in a second. And importantly, uh, the uh, increasing role of food and beverage. 70% of folks went to visit a dining establishment or movie. Um, and so very strong holiday season. I think that some of these stats are reflective of the topics that I'm going to talk about today. First, just some context setting. The U.S. economy, U.S. retail market is huge, $5.5 trillion of retail sales. And that is generally when you read the paper what people talk about. What's the growth in retail sales? How are retail sales doing? But in fairness, I think that shortchanges the significance of our industry because really, when we talk about retail real estate, and that's how ICSC positions itself, is we're the association that represents the retail real estate industry. In fairness, I think that minimizes the scale of our industry. I think the term consumer real estate is probably more relevant. And when you broaden that definition, and you take $5.5 trillion of retail sales, and you add $770 billion almost of food and beverage, and then another $177 billion of things like services and movie theaters and about $336 million of, billion of a lot of other stuff, you have about a $6.7 trillion uh, industry. And these numbers, by the way, are not my numbers. They're not ICSC numbers. These are the numbers per the U.S. Census Bureau. We work very closely with the U.S. Census Bureau to aggregate these numbers. And while we talk a lot about the growth of e-commerce, and in fact, it has grown a lot. Over the course of the last five years, from 2014 to 2019, e-commerce has grown by 132%, pure play e-commerce. We've included Amazon in that number. In fact, they're not really pure play e-commerce anymore. That's grown by $210 billion. But look at the growth in in-store brick-and-mortar sales. Double that amount because of the aggregate size of physical retail. It's much bigger. But I actually find the middle 
uh, column even more interesting, which is the growth of food and beverage over the course of that five-year period. 33% growth, but look at the aggregate dollar growth. Just a shade under $200 billion. Almost the same amount of aggregate do dollar growth as pure play e-commerce happened or occurred. And you don't get the kind of coverage of that that you get around the coverage of the growth of e-commerce. But in fact, you guys all know the change in curation of what hap is happening in your shopping centers and in the increasing role of food and beverage. And in fact, that's happening across the industry. It's, as I like to say, there's three kind of macro trends that are impacting our industry. And I've just chosen to organize them in the, uh, the terminology of technology, e-commerce, but lots of other things around technology. Demographics and consumers, the changing consumer. The consumer is changing and their habits are changing. And demographics, and I'll talk about that a little bit, but we are in the midst of enormous demographic changes across our country and really across the world with a baby boomer generation that's really dominated consumer spending and really the U.S. economy for the last three decades that's transitioned out of their prime consumption years. The millennials are transitioning in, but that's a, a generation that does every one of the life events a lot later. Gets married, buy homes, has kids. Why is that important? Because every single one of those life events drives consumption. Statistically, it's always the case, and all of you that have kids know when you have kids, you buy a lot of stuff. And the generation in the middle, Generation X, is a lot smaller. And so what has happened? The industry's adopted or evolved to, to react to these changes. And over the course of the last five years, the percentage of GLA devoted to traditional retail has decreased by 8.2%. Just pause on that. An industry this size, $6.7 trillion industry, the percentage of GLA that's focused to traditional retail has decreased by 8.2%. The percentage that is allocated to food and other stuff, services, non-retail, non-food, has increased by 6.9%. That's an enormous change within a five-year time period, an absolutely enormous change, one that's not well understood and one that's not talked about nearly enough. That's a renaissance. That's a change. Jeff had mentioned the HALO report, and in, encompassed in all of that is this convergence between the physical and the digital world. And ICSC uh, recently did two studies, HALO 1, HALO 2. We're not that creative. I mean, we should have changed the name of the second one, I suppose. But the concept of HALO is what's the impact of convergence between the physical and the digital world? The first was very foundational, just what's the impact of having a store? And we found that when a retailer opens up a store and a geographic area where they didn't have a store before, that web traffic in that geographic area increased by 37%. Why? Because it, it created a level of confidence in the brand, awareness in that brand that didn't exist in that geographic area before. Having a physical store creates confidence on the part of the consumer. That's what that, that's what that study told us, and that is what we heard in the responses. When a retailer closed a store, you see the decreases in web traffic related to different types of brands or different types of subsectors within retail. In Halo 2, we then looked at it a little bit more uh, in depth and said, what's the impact of spend? And what we learned is that those consumers that are true omni-channel consumers, those that buy from a retailer both in the physical uh, store and on their uh, e-commerce channels, are first and foremost the most profitable customers for that retailers, they're the most loyal customers. And in fact, they are also those that spend the most. Not illogical, as you would presume, they buy in both places. And we found that generally speaking, if you spend $100 in one of those channels, you spend at another 130 to 167 in the other channel. That's really what that says. If you bought in the store, you went and bought and spent another $167 online on average. If you bought online $100, you bought in the store another $131. And so it's really in the retailer's best interest to build a customer, a relationship with their customer, where they buy both in the store and online. And they need to create, and by the way, those winning retailers, and if you think about those retailers that are winning consistently in the marketplace, they're generally those retailers that have a consistent experience for their consumer, both in the physical and digital world, and kind of serve them seamlessly across those channels. And you think about what Target and Walmart are doing and the investments they're doing, they're really making investments to kind of align those two channels together. 
This talks a little bit about that concept of the change in the curation of what's in a shopping center. And in fact, while there's been a lot of conversation around store closures, and of course in the news yesterday was Macy's announcement of, uh, you know, they're going to close 125 uh, stores across the country. This just talks in the aggregate, the absolute number of tenants, not GLA, but the number of tenants over the last 15 years increased by 7.2%. And so while there's a lot of conversation over store closures, in the aggregate, there's actually been an addition to tenant mix over the course of that 15-year time period. But what's driven that increase? And generally, what's driven that increase is services. That 20.5% increase in service tenants over that period of time. And that if you look at what is the majority of tenant mix in shopping centers, and by shopping centers I mean everything, from malls to neighborhood centers and everything in between, that over 50% of the tenants are service categories, which, is, which for the purposes of this we included food, restaurants. So not traditional retail. Macy's. And so while this is, this is somewhat timely because of yesterday's announcement around um, some store closures, and what generally happens to that anchor space when it uh, becomes uh, open to be utilized? Ten years ago, in the five-year time period between 2005 and 2009, you can see the composition. When an anchor space became available, generally speaking, almost three-quarters of the time, another kind of anchor tenant went into it. Another department store or something similar to that went into that space. Over the last five years, not so much. Only half the time. And then you can see the variety of other uses that are, that are going into that space, oftentimes being, you know, that space being uh, reallocated and chopped up to have multiple tenants in it. I think that trend's only going to continue and to accelerate, particularly with the challenges that are happening in the department store segment. And now kind of the areas of demand. You know, where uh, are things growing since 2016? And from square foot growth, things like apparel and traditional retail non-apparel have decreased. The, apps, the uh, aggregate amount of square footage has decreased in those segments, and those are the percentages. I think you'll find the, the, the uh, source of growth quite interesting, particularly as it relates to the composition of your tenant mix and the type of centers that you operate. One, experiential. Huge growth in square footage and as a percentage, 20%. And experiential means things like movie theaters and restaurants and necessity-based. Huge growth in necessity-based of, of 12%. And the square footage growth of 98.5. And you look at things like health and services, grocery, mail, and shipping. This is what's happening in the marketplace. And so while the story, quite frankly, that dominates the headlines generally is around apparel and traditional retail, what's actually happening, the market is adapting by changing the tenant mix and the curation mix. And I did, over the holiday season, I did, as you would imagine, a lot of media. And every single interview, everyone, particularly on Black Friday, every video that they showed leading into the interview, every first question was about foot traffic at a department store in a mall. That was it. That was the very first question. You knew it was coming. That was what they were going to do. That was the lead-in, always. And it's because the media, quite frankly, isn't, doesn't quite get the change that's taking place in the industry and where people shop and the changing consumer habits that are taking place. It's our job to educate them. But I'll tell you, that's a hard job because it, it, there is just a, such a kind of reflexive action to think about the way things always were and not the renaissance that's taking place. This speaks a little bit about the increasing uh, presence of food and beverage. And 53% of people, and this is from a Cushman-Wakefield study and some ICSC re research, 53% of people visit shopping centers specifically, specifically for dining. Some of the other statistics, I, I find the one that's the most interesting to, to me is the addition of a million jobs. One million jobs of food and beverage over the last three years. So while the number of jobs in retail has generally gone down, although really kind of been almost flat, um, the growth in food and beverage has been enormous. And again, not talked about a lot, and, but that makes sense, right? You're getting you're a lot more food and beverage, a lot more restaurants and shopping centers and other places, you're going to have a lot more jobs. 
I mean, we all know that discounts growing significantly. Matter of fact, I was at um, a conference uh, two weeks ago, and the CEO of Dollar General spoke. And the amount of stores that they have open and that they plan to open over the course of this next year is astounding. You know, a thousand stores. And that speaks to discounts, but not just Dollar General. I mean, discount retailers, we, you know, that we know that Walmart and Target are significantly dominating, but TJ Maxx, for example, and the amount of growth that they've had and the challenge that that's placed upon traditional retail. And I think this is fascinating too. And this is probably, so, you know, probably intuitive, but this is the real numbers around density. And those uh, neighborhood centers that within a, that, that within three miles, and this is uh, based around a diameter, so it's not just three miles in one direction, the di within a three-mile diameter of that shopping center, those that have 100 uh, households of 100K or more generally can charge more rent and have lower vacancy rates, highly dense areas. The, le the less dense the area is that they're serving, the higher the vacancy rate, the lower the rent. That, do that doesn't necessarily speak to profitability. I mean, it may be very profitable, um, you know, but that's but but average rent and vacancy rate uh, is driven by household density. And I wanted to kind of close before I go to Q and A around just mixed use. And obviously, one of the massive changes, and I talked about convergence, and we talked about the convergence of the physical and digital world, but there's also convergence taking place within commercial real estate. And generally, that conversion is led by retail properties. And this is a, a depiction of the growth of what I'll call massive retail-led mixed-use uh, properties, things that have at least 250,000 square feet of retail where they've now developed a mixed-use center where that retail used to be singly there. And you can see the growth over the last 20 years from 283 to now 562 of these very large mixed-use centers that have at least 250,000 square feet of retail. And what's in them? And over the last 10 years, generally apartments are the most significant part. And that speaks to this trend. Again, demographics, millennials, not yet pre-kids generally, oftentimes pre-marriage. They want to live, work, and play in one environment. Baby boomers, post-kids, empty nesters, Generally, a lot of live, work, and play in one environment. And the industry has taken note of that and adapted. That's what a mixed-use center allows you to do, right? Live, work, and play in one environment. I think what's particularly interesting is what you see in the composition of the last year. And if you looked at 2018 and 2017, you would also see this trend, which is the increasing amount of square footage uh, devoted towards apartments or multifamily housing. And it speaks to you know, a, real, a real focus upon development of affordable housing uh, in these types of environments, uh, and particularly in highly dense communities. And then finally, we did a study that spoke to a month in the life of a consumer. And so what are the behaviors that a typical consumer uh, has from a consumption pattern based upon their demographic group. And the three largest demographic groups, we didn't have Gen Z, although we've done a lot of studies on Gen Z, but not, a, not this particular study. And the difference in behaviors between millennials, Gen X, and baby boomers. And, and first and foremost, Gen X, again, as I mentioned, they're, a, they're the smallest of those three demographic groups. There's about 20 million less Gen Xers than baby boomers. That's an enormous, enormous, change that, that impacts our industry because that generation has the highest average household income. They're also in their prime consumption years. Gen X are generally people that are in their late 30s to their mid to late 50s. And what happens in your late 30s to your mid to late 50s, you generally have a home, are married, and have kids. And why is that important? Because you buy a lot of stuff during that period of time. And so this gives you a sense of their behavior, but what you will see in all of those cases is they visit shopping centers an awful lot. And so despite the narrative around um, physical retail being dead or, there's, or, or it's going in the way of the apocalypse, that's not what the facts suggest. The facts suggest that people still shop in physical locations a lot. In fact, but what they shop for has changed and that the industry has changed as you saw from some of the statistics around the changing mix of GLA. So with that, 
I'd love to take some questions. I knew I'd throw a lot of data at you, but I'd love to take your questions. Great. Do you mind? Um, why don't I start with a couple, and then we'll okay. open it up for the, uh, for the audience. Um, thank you, Tom. Uh, sure. The amount of data available is, is just, it's just increasing consistently, and we need to grasp that, and we need to understand where these changes are happening as an organization. Um, and we got to embrace it because they're, we're not going to make them different. <laughs> they're they're going to keep going, and we, but they create great opportunities for us. And that's why, you know, to see what the ICSC is doing to, to to gather that data is really really important. So let me ask you one of the things that we're always thinking about is is who, who what are the biggest innovations in the industry today? What are what are the things that you kind of go wow wow to? Well, I think first of all, I think the industry in fairness, has innovated an awful lot, um, particularly for an industry that, you know, the core of it is a long-lived asset that's hard to repurpose on a dime, right? But if you look at those statistics around changing GLA, that's an awful lot of change, an awful lot of innovation in a short period of time. So at the aggregate, I think there has been an awful lot of innovation in reacting to kind of consumer demand. I think that... Um, you know, I think that the, the whole concept of convergence is what I would call the biggest innovation. And I look at uh, the largest retailers, you know, in the world. Um, and I'll take Walmart as the largest physical retailer in the world. And they're going aggressively into digital properties. And I look at Amazon, the largest digital retailer in the world, and they're going aggressively in the physical world. And, and what they're seeing, obviously, is the the benefit of being in both channels and that you can't effectively serve your consumer uh, if you're not. That said, I think when I look at folks like Walmart and Target and what they've done, particularly to kind of make it seamless and easy for consumers to buy online and pick up in a store and kind of changing the way their stores are laid out to support that, changing the way you can drive up and pick up your goods, including groceries, I think that's a pretty massive innovation, right? And they and and I think it's really reacting to the consumer. I think on the other hand, you have, you know, the, the buzzword is obviously experiential and, and creating an experience in retail. And I think that when people think of experience, they um, particularly when you talk to the media, they expect you to come up with some kind of concept that there's robots walking around the store and that's kind of innovation. First and foremost, I think the retailers that, that do the best are those that are really focused on kind of the traditional tried and true things or service and product availability and merchandising and so forth. Um, but I think, you know, experience, I think every retailer um, needs to innovate relative to what their value proposition is. And I think those that do it really well have done that. So you look at Apple on one hand, when you walk into an Apple store, and I had to laugh, I went to the Apple store in Manhattan uh, up by, you know, um, Columbus Circle area. It was like a Wednesday afternoon. And I, I walked in to buy something, and it was just absolutely packed. I mean, absolutely packed. And I know most Apple stores are. But here's New York, the height of kind of, you know, supposedly e-commerce, you know, Mecca Center and the whole thing. And it's just packed, wall to wall. You can't even walk around the store. And I stood at the very top of where I could. I took a picture of it, and I tweeted it out and said, yeah, physical retail's dead. Like, right. <laughs> But that experience is different, right? Because they're, you're, you're touching and feeling, interacting with the product. Way over on the other spectrum is something like TJ Maxx, right? I mean, you don't, they don't even have a digital presence. They're kind of the outlier. They don't really even have a, a, you know, an online presence. But yet the experience there is like a treasure hunt concept. And people want to go in and see what they're going to find. And they'll wait in line, you know, on the delivery days to find out what they're going to find. But that's true to who they are. And I think the, that's innovation, though, because they're filling, they're saying, here's what the market wants, and we're innovating to, to fill that. So I think it's all, I don't think there's one innovation. I think there's lots of innovations. But I do think the, the conversion that's taking place between the physical and digital world is, is a pretty significant one and, and is only going to accelerate. And probably, I mean, if you think about it, we're really in kind of the the second or third inning as it relates to technology, I mean, it's only going to continue to become more pronounced. So, One of the questions that we're, we always wrestle with is whether it's easier to go from the digital world to the physical world or the physical world to the digital world, which in our business is, you know, 
Amazon versus Walmart or Amazon versus Kroger. Um, any thoughts on that about what, you know, it, when you look at winners and losers or, or easier or harder, how, how, to, how to think about that? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I know that uh, certainly, and of course, everybody's going to sing their own book, right? So I think that, you know, Doug McMillan said he'd rather play their hand because, you know, it's a lot easier to um, build out digital, in his mind, a lot easier to build out digital properties than to build a physical presence that's, you know, in proximity to whatever it is at 90% of the U.S. population. I kind of believe, you know, my instinct is that if you are, if you are particularly a, like a Kroger or a Walmart that, or quite frankly, a CVS or a Walgreens or those that have, you know, physical presence that are so close to where people live across the U.S., that that's a pretty good hand to play if you're trying to solve the last mile, right? Which is the kind of the big issue. And, and I do think retailers have become better at, trying to solve that last mile. And I, I always wonder why the market, I mean, they kind of do. They don't really for Amazon, but they do for other retailers. They don't really react to the cost of running a digital business. And, you know, by far the most profitable channel is the physical channel. By far the most profitable channel for a retailer is the physical channel. And it's kind of intuitive if you think about it, right? Because you, when we walk into a store, Forget the emotion, just the basic economics. If you walk into a store, you've just, you as the consumer just bore the delivery cost because you walked in to pick it up. If they ship it to you for free, they bore the delivery cost. So that eats into their margin. And it's, it, it really behooves a retailer. That's why it's so smart them to do everything in their power to get you into that store. Because not only will you buy something else, they just took out a huge cost out of their supply chain, right? And I kind of feel like at some point the market's going to get over the idea that it's a constitutional right of every American to have free shipping. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not really free, right? Somebody's paying for it. Nothing in life is free. Somebody pays for it. It's just you and I aren't. But somebody is. And at some point the market's either going to say, okay, we're going to accept really low margins from you know these retailers or... We're going to expect them to figure out a way to recoup that margin, and the most effective way is to not do it if you can get somebody to walk into your store. So, so the the department store mentality versus the Walmart and the grocery mentality. Um, to me, that's a, there's a big sort of question about because I I never thought Kroger would do nearly the things they did because I thought of them more of the the retail mentality of a department store. You know we're it's been working for 50 years. It's going to keep working, and 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 they've. It appears that they've they've made a very big you know change from that. Is are you feeling that? Is that is that you know are are we, we we've seen what happened to the department stores? Are there any other parts of our industry where you see a similar kind of reaction yeah. where it's it's we're not which is a non almost a non reaction. Yeah, I wouldn't say necessarily non reaction, but I I do think the you know I I look at kind of the the whole drugstore part of the industry and and grocery for that matter and and I think the one massive trend that that is true is that healthcare is becoming an increasingly is colliding with retail and and that also makes sense for a number of reasons one you have an aging population and so you have a lot of people that are you know, healthcare is really important to them. As you age, you're going to see the doctor a lot more often. And if you're going to see the doctor or you're going to need health care services a lot more often, you're going to want them close to where you live. That makes sense. Um, and so that's why you see, I think, what Walgreens and CBS with the one-minute clinics and now having urgent cares and Walgreens and so forth. I think that's and, – and, of course, Walmart now is kind of has a chief medical officer and so forth – I think that's a huge trend because um, Americans and also the insurance companies, quite frankly, they want you now. It's the opposite of what they used to want, right? They used to say, don't go see the doctor. Now they want you to see the doctor as frequently as possible because they know that drives down their cost, preventative care. And, and I, again, if you are a retailer that has a footprint where you touch so many, such a large percentage of the U.S. population, that seems like an enormous opportunity. Um, 
And I look at those, the Walgreens and the CVSs and the Walmarts and say, you know, they're starting to, they're, they're getting, they're, they're really, they're really jumping on that, right? I mean, that, that, I mean, for Walmart to have a C, you know, a chief medical officer, that's a that's, pretty big deal. That yeah. says something about where the organization's going. Yeah. And you can go into a public store now and you go into a little booth and there's yeah. a doctor that shows up on the screen and he, he's got all the little tools around and you put on your, and, and he, and he diagnoses you and it's, like wow, yeah, that's 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 an experience, right? I mean, it, it's it's not a happy experience because it's a doctor, but but it is an experience that you you wouldn't you, you know you couldn't have gotten. And I think you'll ago. see increasing you'll see increasing percentages of floor space devoted to that, and maybe less devoted to kind of goods. You know, I yeah. I I because I because you're obviously going to need a bit more floor space, but but again, if you get people in the store, they're going to buy something. So it's perfectly, it's a great business idea. So we hear about the apocalypse. Um, what, what can we do to change the dialogue? Is there stuff we can do to help? How, how do you yeah. think about that? Well, I think, one, I think that I, I do think things are starting to change in, in the narrative and it's starting to become a little bit more balanced, nuanced, and maybe even bifurcated, which is, I think the, the, you know, the story is becoming more mall centric than physical retail centric. Um, and so I, I, I think there is a recognition that open air, uh, grocery anchored uh, shopping centers, et cetera, are doing a lot better. Um, and that narrative isn't as applicable or maybe not applicable to them generally. Um, so I think first and foremost, I think there has been some change over the quite, you even kind of saw it over the holiday season and so forth. They were more balanced. And even the Macy's announcement when they talked about closing their stores, but then they talked about opening up stores right. in open air. And, you know, so I, I do think that there's a recognition of that. That said, there's a lot of work to do. And so I think the more that, um, that everyone can share the facts, you know, in conversations, whether it's at cocktail parties or <laughs> it's at when you're talking to bankers and, and others trying to, trying to compete I think is really important I will tell you it's hard you know I that's deck or elements of that deck that I walk through I have sat with every single media outlet significant national media outlet in the country yeah I've shared those stats multiple times with the Wall Street Journal that those those US census numbers I've shared with the Wall Street Journal you know how many times they still say online sales are, you know, 18% of U.S. Yeah. sales? It's just not factually true, right? right? I mean, I, there's certainly a percentage, and that's fine. When nobody's disputing that they're growing, but share the real facts, not the ones that's, that's kind of lazy, which is the lazy one is that you look at U.S. census statistics and you say non-store sales, and that's the number that they use. Well, non-store sales has a lot of other stuff in it other than online, but they just, it's just easy. And so they, they, you know, they kind of refuse or close their mind to it. So I think it's just persistence. It's fighting. It's constant. You know, and, and honestly, you know, and, and then for as much progress as you make, when a Macy's announces they're going to close 125 stores, that, you know, kind of takes you a couple steps back, <laughs> right, too. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So the, the realities of the market are also challenging, too, yeah. sometimes. Yeah, We're just trying to figure out where the opportunity is in this sort of misconnection. And yeah. if you look at our business, we're very happy with the place we are. We like to think it's because we all thought about it and it was like a brilliant strategy. We, we were lucky. You know, we got into the right, into a niche that over time, you know, we could have easily been in the mall business, um, but we weren't. Um, and our ability to stay focused on this niche has, you know, has been, been yeah. helpful for us. So one of the key new things that the ICS, or not new, but things that, that you're, you're focused on is bringing younger people into the industry. Um, you have the new talent incubator project. Can you tell us all a little yeah. bit about it and how we might help or get involved? Yeah. Um, so first, just to kind of, you know, kind of position the challenge, I think, that we all face. And a lot of it has to do with the previous topic, which is the retail apocalypse and kind of the narrative that's that's out there. If you look at millennials as a percentage of the U.S. working population, so that demographic group, millennials, they're about a third of the U.S. working population. Makes sense. They're actually a little more, about 34% of the U.S. working population. If you look at millennials as a percentage of our industry, retail real estate, they're about 
of retail real estate. And what does that mean? That means we have our demographics, our pipeline for the future isn't all that, isn't as strong as it should be. It's not reflective of the U.S. population. And I think that that's a real challenge, right? Even if you had an industry, even if you said there wasn't going to be any growth at all, you're still going to have people that are naturally going to retire and transition into other phases of life. You need a pipeline of talent to, to fill those opportunities. And so I think all of us collectively need to really focus upon that 11% delta and say, how do we get that down? And I think there's two things that, well, there's really three that ICSC is, is, is focused upon as the industry group. And obviously you guys are going to do things as a company, but things that we can do collectively together. First and foremost is that is what we call the talent incubator project. It's, it's being uh, driven out of our foundation, but ultimately it's about student engagement, getting on campuses, building relationships and partnerships with universities all over the country. And we've begun to formalize that in the course of the last six months. We've signed partnership agreements with 30 universities where we effectively said all of your students can become members of ICSC. And they'll have then opportunities for mentorship opportunities. They can apply for scholarships. They can apply for internships. We affectionately call it the ships because they all end in ships. <laughs> um, but the whole point of that is to get front and center on college campuses to get our industry, get ICSC, yes, but really more importantly, the industry, ICSC being the proxy for the industry, aware as a source of jobs. And all of us that were in college or have kids in college, we care about them getting a job, um, that this is an industry that has lots and lots of opportunities. And so we're really aggressively going uh, to do that. We're at 30, but the, the sky's the limit. I mean, if we could have a relationship with every university across the country, we would. And so to the extent that you have relationships, if you're involved with a university, Please reach out to me, reach out to Lori Novick, who runs this effort uh, at ICSC. Reach out to anybody at ICSC, and we'll uh, coordinate with you to try to get them, those universities to be part of our university partnership program. And there's a lot of benefits for students in doing that. Again, it gives them scholarship opportunities, internship opportunities, mentorship opportunities to help them. The second is, once they get into the industry, we really need to reboot our next-gen program. And the Next Gen program is, was a wonderful program within ICSC. Quite frankly, I think over the course of, of and primarily as ICSC is doing, we didn't invest enough resources and attention on that program, and we are now. And so we're going to dedicate a lot more resources to really engage with, once students are in the industry, folks, if you're under 40, we're going to help you in your career progression, professional development, networking, et cetera, to make your experience working with our members to be an awesome one. Underlying all of that is diversity. And uh, I don't need to tell all of you, we do not have a very diverse industry. Um, as a, and we're not reflective of the U.S. population. Uh, and that's a problem. And so we have a Partners in Diversity program uh, to really coordinate with all, not just what are we doing at ICSC around diversity, but what are lots of other organizations doing around diversity and how do we partner with them? How do we learn from them? How do our members learn from them? That's why the term partners in diversity. So we can really turbocharge that effort uh, around diversity. We are not going to be successful as an industry if we do not become more diverse because we're not reflective of the U.S. population and we need to be reflective of the U.S. population. Uh, and we're shortchanging the opportunities um, for the industry if we don't do that. So those are kind of our three efforts. I think it's a, I don't think there's anything as an organization we can do that ICSC could do. Yes, we hold the big events and recon and New York and regional deal makings and all those things. And those are really, really important because they help members facilitate their business. But for the industry and the long-term viability of the industry, there's nothing we can do that's more important than engaging with students, engaging with the next generation of talent, and focusing upon increasing diversity in our industry. There's just nothing we can do. That's a generational, that's a 10-year journey, because uh, you're not going to flip a switch on an industry this big overnight, but it's really, really, really important. When you look at, a, at an economy that where retail and, and, and is, is sort of getting a bad 
image for a sustained period of time, they don't go to that. They don't, they're not attracted to that business. And we've had that for a number of years. And I think the ICSC's focus on making sure it's, it, it's not an ICSC issue. It's every business that is in, you know, has a retail relationship that has got to, you know, it's got to re- reboot their thinking. They got to re- rethink about how we're going to attract the best talent and then also use that talent to create the best results. Um, there's a, there's, there's just a lot, a lot going on, which makes it a very, for me, it's the most exciting time that we've had in, in the industry because it, there's so much going on. Um, but, you know, we, we, we need to get the message out and make sure that we're tracking it. And I think we are very actively trying to pursue that. We, I think we have, um, according to, uh, Lori, we have the largest internship program, um, with, with, in conjunction with ICSC. Um, I think University of Cincinnati is now on the list of, of colleges, which I think we helped in, in doing, and we're going to continue to, to grow that, uh, um, you know, as, as, as much as we can, because it is a, it's an important part for the, for the industry. And, and if it's important for the industry, as one of the industry leaders, we, it's got to be important for us. So that's good. Tom, oh, there's, there's, there's been a lot of talk about mixed use and having, you know, started in sort of the development side of the business, it's really hard. And mixed use, very, I mean, the number of great mixed use projects, I don't think is as much as the number of mixed use projects that aren't that great, right. where at least one element of them just doesn't work. Um, is this a, you know, sort of a, a fake or is this really where it's, where, where you no. think it's going to be? I think it's a little bit of both. So I, you know, if you looked at that stat that I put up, you know, 528, you know, yeah. big mixed use, I mean, that's, that's a big number. Um, but for a country the size of the U.S., those massive mixed use, those 250,000 square feet of retail or more, probably not, that's probably not too many, I would guess. I think the more challenge is when somebody has, you know, a vacant department store and decides to, you know, knock it down and put it, put an office tower there or put an apartment there and haven't, hasn't really thought through the demographics of the area, the needs of the area, what's the demand in the area, et cetera. And I do worry that there's, you know, a rush to kind of just say that's the easiest way to deal with it, you know, uh, you know, um, space. So I, my gut would tell me that, um, you know, there's probably, you know, some challenges out there that, that, you know, will come to fruition. I think the, I think it's probably also the, the, the supply, the opportunity to do mixed use is also going to increase, I think, for a couple of reasons. One, not just the dislocation of the department store segment and what that, you know, means in regards to availability. And of course, you see malls now, you know, taking old department store space and doing other things with it that are mixed use in nature. But I also think you have a lot less, you know, as, as you have ride sharing applications and, um, you know, kind of a liberalization by a lot of uh, municipalities around parking density rules and so forth, you're going to see a lot of uh, opportunities on, on, on parking, uh, you know, lots to build other stuff. And so I don't think it's going to go, I don't think the interest in it will go away uh, in the short term. In the long term, something's got to give. And I, I, one of the things that I, you know, if I was to look out in the future, because I'm a big believer in demographics, I'm a geek, you know, I'm a stack geek. I love, I love, you know, kind of data. And I think numbers don't really lie at the end of the day. And, and I mentioned the millennial generation and it's a huge generation. I mean, it's enormous. It's bigger than the baby boomers. And they have done everything later. For a lot of reasons, maybe it's been choice. It's also the generation that became of age during the Great Recession. And so they had a lot more debt, harder to get jobs. And so I think there's a combination of all of that. Um, but they're now starting to get married, buy homes, have kids. I mean, if you look at household formation in the U.S., the millennial generation is driving that. And... I do, and the early indications are, we all kind of bought into the, to the narrative that, well, the millennial generation is different. They like to live in cities and they want to live in, you know, in these highly dense environments. Maybe that's true. All I know is when you have kids, you start worrying about schools and where they're going to go to school and the quality of the public school system and all that kind of stuff. It's all the stuff that anybody who has kids thinks about. 
And the early indications of millennial generation is they don't think that much differently than anybody else when they have kids. And where where are a lot of, you know, mostly the vast majority of schools, just by population over the last 100 years, has been out in the suburbs. That's when there has been developed. And of course, you get space, and you're starting to see a lot more household formation happen in the suburbs again. And so I wouldn't write off the suburbs as a source of, you know, growth over the course of the next decade plus, because that's a huge generation. Um, and if they're starting to make decisions based around kids and schools and so forth, that could create a lot of demand. And I don't care how much people buy online versus they buy in a store. When you have a generation that big that starts buying a lot of stuff, there's a lot of demand in retail for that. And so I'm bullish on the industry long term. I think there will obviously be some corrections along the way. But in the long term, over a 15-year, 20-year time period, I'm pretty bullish because of the amount of demand coming into the pipeline. Well, let's ask for some questions from the audience. Uh, thank you for being here today. Um, my question is, what do you think are the biggest weaknesses and biggest strengths in both the uh, digital and uh, brick and mortar uh, channels? Well, I think the biggest, I'll talk digital first. Obviously the biggest, the biggest uh, strength is one data. You know, they can accumulate information about buying patterns, behavior, et cetera, um, and speed and convenience, I mean, for, for as a consumer. So for the retailer, they get to know so much about you. I mean, I, it's almost scary, you know, how much, not just Amazon, but Google and all, everybody knows about everybody. So that's clearly a strength because they have so much data about the consumer that they're serving. And then a convenience factor, I think, is is that. The weakness is obviously, one, profitability. I do think that's a challenge. I mean, it's, it, it hasn't been one that they've, anybody's gotten really hammered over, but it is a challenge because customer acquisition costs in online retail are really, really high, really significant. And then I think you can't really build a, you know, a true relationship with your consumer. I mean, they, they, you know them, but you know them in a faceless way. You're not really building a relationship. You don't have a chance to enrich that relationship and so forth. Time will tell how much consumers really care about that. I mean, but that's, I think those are the weaknesses of it. I think physical retail has the opposite strengths and weaknesses, just account the, the, the corollary to that. Look, physical retail, it's really, it's a lot harder to understand your consumer because you don't, you don't have, you can't follow them around the internet, right? So you don't know everything that they're doing. And that's why this convergence between physical and digital is so important, I think, as it helps you understand you know, your consumer a lot better. But that's a weakness. You know, data, access to data, I think that's a, that's a weakness. Um, I think the other, uh, the other weakness is obviously, you know, it's because it's physical, it's your ability to change on a dime is, it, it's just as, it's not as time, it's time prohibitive, right? I mean, it's going to take you longer to adjust than it would be in an online world because you can change a website a lot faster than you can change a store or reconfigure a store, et cetera. The positive, I, I actually think convenience is sometimes a positive, right, depending upon where the store is located. Credibility. As we're social, you know, we, we people are, there's a validity to having something physical and seeing it, even if we are digital creatures in so many ways. And certainly our study proved that to be the case. So I think the validity of having a, a store, but the most important one is relationship, right? I mean, you got it's a chance for you to interact with your consumer, to really build a relationship with them, um, to build a loyalty with them. But you got to deliver. You know, you got retailers have to deliver. They have to really. I actually think the most important experiential element any real retailer can do is be really great at the topic that you talked about before the break, customer service. Right? I mean, why do people like certain consumer, certain stores or certain hotels or whatever? I mean, they do because they get great service and they're willing to pay more. So I, I worry about retailers that are disinvesting in people in their stores and disinvesting, quite frankly, in, in inventory in their stores. I think if you're going to a store, you kind of expect it to be there, as opposed to saying, hey, can I help you buy it online? Well, no, I could have done that at home. I, I, you know, I came here to buy it. Um, and people, and you know, people want to interact with people, and you're courteous, and I think that's the way to really, that's the strength, but that, that, that's also the biggest risk if you don't do that well. Why don't we do one more? 
In relation to the mixed use, I was just wondering about the affordable housing, what type and how it relates to or how many have been thrown into these centers, mixed use centers, as opposed to conventional or market rate housing. Yeah, there hasn't been, uh, generally in the mixed use environment, it hasn't been kind of government mandated affordable housing. I mean, there's some of that, but that's not a huge percentage of it. I think the issue around affordable housing, and what I'll say even just, just the affordable housing in general is a huge issue for our country, obviously. I mean, we're, we're, that's why we're having those kind of debates in the political realm. But I also think the cost of just home ownership, even if you take it out of affordable housing and just say the cost of renting versus owning and the, you know, down payments and so forth. And back to the demographic conversation, it's a big nugget, right? I mean, they have a down payment. And I, so that's why you see such a growth in apartments and a multifamily type of housing because it's, it's really difficult for people to afford homes, particularly in high priced, Communities, which is where a lot of that mixed use and high dense retail led um, development is happening. Thank you, Tom. But while you're here, um, well, I just want to take one uh, the opportunity to make one announcement in that, uh, as you know, we're Pico is highly supportive of the talent incubator program. We believe that building the next generation of talent is an important objective for our industry. In support of this initiative, the Edison Foundation is going to support uh, that with a $5,000 per year contribution to your Talent Incubator Scholarship Program, oh. and we uh, we thank you um, for oh, thank uh, it. You. And so, uh, thank you. And, yeah. Thank you. Well, for those of you who don't know, Tom, Tom came into the ICSC, and it was there, there are a lot of things moving. I mean, it's not just the retail industry that's changing. And uh, he's creating a leadership that is being innovative. It's actually being very uh, proactive in terms of addressing the issues we have. Um, we're very lucky to have Tom uh, running the ICSC, and I think it's we're going to see things out of it, like like the incubator program that aren't that everybody doesn't do. And uh, it's it's his leadership that's getting us oh, there. So, you. Tom, thanks thank you again you. for thanks being you. here. Thanks again to Tom McGee and Jeff Edison for a great discussion. Please check back for more episodes of Retail Intel in the next couple of weeks. Thanks.